Hey guys, welcome back to Keep It Rolling with Keegan. Uh, this is a two-part uh, podcast. Uh, part one went up earlier today, and this is part two. So still got Dr. Greg Peoples, and we're just talking about some other health and nutrition stuff in part two here. Yeah, um, good one. We talked about lots of important stuff. I hope you can learn something. And yeah, just sit back, enjoy the episode. Uh, peace. Now moving away more so from um, nutrition, um, I want to ask you about kind of in sport, is it is a psychological kind of edge or is it more of a physical edge that's uh, more important um, in an athlete? Um, yeah, in you, terms of performance? Yeah, for, so before, for performance is um, going in mentally prepared and like everything switched on mentally. Is that more important or would it be more important to make sure that you're fully physically prepared and have your body in the peak condition? Yeah, and... and this is an interesting, you know, we talk about siloed performance indicators, but we now know in the last 20 years that the athlete's optimal performance has to be an integration between the physical performance, the cognitive performance, the mental preparation. Um, there's been some nice studies that show if you put two athletes up against each other, you, can, you can't separate them in terms of their VO2 max or how strong they are. So reality is a lot of the on-day performance can be explained by preparation in terms of the psychological preparation or the ability to handle for example stress well um, you know athletes talk about being in the flow um, and a colleague of mine Christian Swan he's been working on what is actual flow in athletes um, and the idea of just simply how someone sets their goal can actually change the way that they um, perceive their performance so you know when we talk about goal setting we talk about fixed goals I'm gonna I, I need to achieve this um, or open goals I want to do the best I can so just changing the way that an athlete focuses on the goal can change the way that their um, stress or anxiety levels are during a performance and that actually might be one way that they can maximize their performance as well so everything's important but reality on the day the way that an athlete handles the situation is actually really important. And otherwise, we'd have Olympic um, finals of just who's who's the strongest and who's the got the best VO2 max. But we know that the person with the highest VO2 max doesn't necessarily win the marathon. There has to be so many other factors involved in that as well. And another interesting topic is this idea of mental toughness. Me- mental toughness has been described by the ability to, um, you know, Uh, work through a number of different paradigms including how committed you are to the goal um, how invested you are to the goal and and that can change the way that an athlete performs on the day so there's actually now surveys or or tools that we can measure someone's mental toughness and mental toughness has also been shown to be an important factor on on day performance so you can have the same athlete with the same vo2 max but they're um, mental strength, we'll call it, can differ, and that can be a contributing factor to who actually crosses the line first or second. Yeah, yeah. So for basketball fans, um, a big a big comparison for that is like that Kobe Kobe mentality, which is about how Kobe was a super super strong work ethic and um, really you know great worker and um, always prepared. I think that another big thing that comes into that is if you know that you're physically prepared and you've done everything you possibly can to be ready for it. I think it's a lot easier to be maybe mentally prepared because mm. you're knowing 
if it doesn't work, then there's nothing else you can do because your body has is at the the right level to do the right thing. Yeah, that's right. Okay, and again, it gets back to that goal setting as well. Um, short-term goals, long-term goals. So, you know, athletes have to be able to manage that there's going to be some ups and downs. Sometimes there's going to be disappointment, but the long-term goal then doesn't disappear. Um, the short-term goal mightn't have been achieved, but the long-term goal can override that and they can continue on because otherwise we'd see athletes just quitting all the time, wouldn't we? Yeah, um, yeah. Because there's always going to be a game that they lose or something that they don't come first in. Um, so I, I think a really interesting area of research is goal setting in athletes and that sort of obviously is underpinned by you know, you know, disciplines such as sports psychology. Yeah, um, around sports psychology as well, um, have you found around like motivation, like um, I was looking at a, a, a little while ago, intrinsic versus extrinsic motivation and also positive versus negative motivation. Mm. So um, what, if, what would you say would be kind of the the best way to get like be motivated to do the right things for yourself and for your sport yeah um i think both are important and the the, the sports psychology industry recognize that you can't just simply separate them but it's probably a healthy balance between the two so you know an extrinsic motivation being that you know there's obviously a, a gold medal to be won there is a, a number one position to be had a title to be had they're important um, but the intrinsic goals are things that are going to sustain someone continuing to you know work towards those extrinsic so an intrinsic goal being that you know independent of what other people think of them what other people judge them by that those those goals will be um, personal goals that they're just simply you know, trying to basically you know optimize their own performance independent of anything else on offer um, and what we know is that athletes are quite focused and driven to the point that, you know, they have to also be, you know, considering, you know, obsession. You know, an athlete that's too obsessed on these goals potentially might run risks of things like overtraining, for example. Um, you know, there has to be a, a balance in everything that, you know, you can't be so driven to the point where you're training 10 hours a day and not allowing your body to recover. So that's where the the, the intrinsic, the extrinsic, and then the physiology all have to come together to make sure that you're getting the right balance between training, um, being confident that your training is going to be enough for you to perform, uh, and at the same time, um, not put yourself in a position where you overreach and overtrain, and your body then starts to break down, uh, which is that long-term goal again as well. You know, because what we find is a lot of athletes train too hard too early, um, and they end up with higher rates of injury. Um, um, potentially, you know, less recovery, and then obviously performance starts to, you know, drop, and that becomes it more difficult to sustain in terms of, you know, the meeting the expectations of what they're there to do, and that's to to hopefully, you know, do the best they can. Yeah, yeah. So it's about finding that right balance of training and then rest, and then just making sure that you yourself are prepared for what's happening. That's the right. Game day. Yeah. Yeah. Um, mentioning on overtraining, um, I want to ask you, so for someone like me who probably plays more sport than my physio would like me to, yeah. and um, is just trying to do everything, um, how can I kind of um, make sure that I'm not doing too much in overtraining, and should I really be worrying about am I overtraining, am I doing too much, Yeah. Um, with, you know, playing multiple sports on almost every day of the week? Yeah. So, how, how could I, uh, you know, manage that properly and should I be really be worrying about MRO, MRO yeah. overtraining? So, so if you look at the outcomes for overtraining, overtraining outcomes could be you know, extreme fatigue. Extreme fatigue, obviously then, you know, very hard to alleviate and you, you know, 
and if you're asking yourself to perform to your highest level you can't perform under extreme fatigue the other the other issue with overtraining is injuries isn't it um so you know if you have a look at the 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 chronic load that you put into the body and there's going to be days where you train more intensely than others it's really looking at sort of the balance between what am i doing in the next month or year and what are the performances so which parts of the year am i going to have higher workloads which parts of the year are going to have lower workloads and making sure that when those off seasons are occurring um that you're making the most about allowing the body to repair and recover in the off season in terms of you know acute things you can do um if you consider injuries to start with it's a really hot topic can you predict injuries can you say that you know in a week's time or a month's time your current training load is is going to increase your risk of injuries um it it's an area that a lot of people are doing work on at the moment even that you know as i mentioned before we do work with the military and some of the things that we've looked at in the military is you know is a soldier likely to to sustain a, a musculoskeletal injury while they're on a training program um surprisingly there's been some really interesting outcomes on some simple things like you know yourself where you, you you've trained and you get a little bit sore and you might call it a niggle you get a bit of a niggle a bit of a, a soreness in the muscle the idea that that potentially can predict an injury is actually really important so being aware of what parts of the body are sore is it the joint is it the muscle and starting to react quicker to those niggles because the niggles aren't really injuries they're just things that are you know yeah, a bit sore, causing you to sort of think about that part of the body a bit more. It's actually surprising how predictive those niggles potentially are that they, if, if left untreated, could go on to a full-blown injury that you again then need physiotherapy yeah, yeah. for that as well. That definitely works for me because, um, so I went to see the physio because I actually had something going on with my knee which had kind of resolved itself by, by the time I went to see him. But I went, I decided I'd still go to see him because I had a couple of niggles. And he ended up saying, if you come probably a week later, could have been quite bad because you know i had um i had a sore connection point between my calf and my achilles mm. and then also sore around like the bone around my achilles yep and he said if, if you'd waited a week or two more you would have had yeah. Achilles yeah, yeah 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 by the time you come to see me so obviously you know making sure i'm aware of those niggles and going to see someone yeah and yeah sure yeah good. and that's something that um medical teams and coaches can work with athletes to make them more aware of because that's actually a really simple thing isn't it you know often you know we think sports science is really complicated but reality is you know what we need to do as like i'm a scientist what we need to do is translate these things into actual practical applications that coaches and athletes can easily do so if it's simply just writing down in the diary during the course of the week or the month you know which parts of the body are sore whether that soreness resolves quickly or whether it stays around for a week that can give a really good insight of whether or not you know um, further medical attention's needed sooner rather than later and not leaving it too late yeah are there some kind of psychological things that people will notice if they're kind of edging towards overtraining is a um and some other things that I kind of um, read up about was if you're kind of getting close to overtraining, you'll um, notice like a short term, you know, really quick intake in your performance and you'll perform a lot better, but then it won't sustain and you'll drop off very quickly. Yeah, so uh, overtraining is a, a complicated area. Again, we haven't really worked it out and there's a couple of terms that gets used. The, initially, where an athlete's not fully overtrained. In fact, over, being an overtrained athlete it doesn't happen often. Often athletes are uh, uh, reaching into a, a situation called overreaching. It means that 
you know, a, a truly overtrained athlete is an athlete of struggling to get out of bed. They're actually medically diagnosed as an athlete that's got chronic fatigue, essentially. Overreaching athletes is what we sort of experience most of the time. And these athletes have got a, a range of, let's call them signs and symptoms. But it, as you pointed out, it might be that there's a acute performance, but then they can't back it up the next day or they can't back it up the next week. So that would be one sign. Certainly, again, um, you know, We've got lots of interesting ideas that your autonomic nervous system might give you some insight. So if you've heard of heart rate variability, um, there's a lot of talk around that you can simply measure the variability of your heart rate at rest when you wake up in the morning and that if that variability starts to drop, that might also give you an insight that the um, that there's potential for... for um, fatigue that's starting to overreach as well. So, so at this point, we don't have the full answer, but we know there's a, a variety of integrated body systems, including the autonomic nervous system, that could give us some insight to this. But you're absolutely right. The ability to sustain um, a performance and, and repeat that performance within a time period would be an indication that, that, that fatigue's not being resolved or recovery is not optimal. Yeah, yeah. Um so if someone maybe is um, experiencing overtraining or if, um, you know, like me, they're doing probably too much sport and their body's, you know, trying to, just trying to cope, um, what are some good recovery strategies that people could um, kind of utilize to make sure that they are, you know, making sure their body's right? Yeah, well, get, getting back to the diet, the number one thing that we know is a lot of athletes are um, energy deficient, so they think they're eating enough. But surprisingly, they're not. Um, if you're training hard and training regularly and competing regularly, you, you're actually surprised how much food you do need to intake. So one of the first things is to work with a sports nutritionist to actually see that you're not in a relative energy deficiency. Um, that can also mean having a look at the types of food you're taking in after training or after competition. Are you getting enough protein? Are you getting enough carbohydrates? Um, are you hydrated, you know, uh, or you know, rehydrating effectively, you know, between training and competition? Other recovery strategies. There's a lot of work being done on this. You know, if you consider um, uh, cold versus hot water immersion, so you'll notice a lot of athletes will either put themselves into cold water or now what's becoming quite interesting is actually using hot water cold water's been the traditional one because we've thought that oh, we're going to reduce inflammation reduce swelling and doing all those that's important but what we do know is hot water has actually been shown to be effective for increasing blood flow and increasing blood flow might actually be you know delivering more nutrients oxygen getting rid of waste products so it's not cold water or hot water but it's actually looking at where cold water and hot water can be used as an adjunct therapy between the two and sometimes athletes have got into hot water and into cold water and back to hot water for example other times if you're wanting um, you know just simply to reduce soreness and inflammation it might be cold water only other times if you want to um, increase training adaptation you might be using hot water immersion uh, so that 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 that's certainly an area that a lot of papers or a lot of research has, has, has been looking at quite intensely in the last five years. Um, you'll notice um, compression garments is the other hot topic um, and simple ones like your, your skins that you can put on. The idea there is to again sort of um, you know, compress the vascular system, compress the lymph system and help blood flow back to the heart. Um, but there's now commercial available lower limb um, compression um, equipment where you actually stick your leg inside 
it looks like a space suit and you yeah, pump it up that, yeah, and, yeah. and it presses around the muscle and the idea there it's pumping on and off and it's it's trying to encourage um, blood flow to push those uh, products out of the muscle and back to the central circulation so the body can deal with it you know things like the liver and that can be picking up some of those byproducts so um, compression is the other interesting so we've got water we've got compression um, and we've got diet as sort of the three you know primary areas that have been looked at most but don't forget sleep. Yeah, um, yeah. I think you know we haven't sort of chatted about that much, but one of the most powerful ways that athletes can actually recover is to get enough sleep and get enough quality sleep at the right time as well. Um, and that can be, you know, it leads into the sports psychology a little bit because, you know, athletes that are trying to prepare can be a little bit more anxious and their sleep quality might go down. Um, surprising, I don't know if you, I've experienced myself, if I've actually exerted myself you know, through, you know, an ultra marathon or something like that, you think you're going to be really tired. You can actually struggle to sleep the night after an mm. ultra marathon. Your body's actually revved quite high. Um, so sleep is, is important. Sleep as in the number of hours of sleep we get, the timing of that sleep, and then the quality that we don't want to be waking up too many times. Why is sleep important? Well, lots of hormones get released during sleep. Things like growth hormone, for example, is spiked during sleep. What does growth hormone do? It helps with repair of the body's tissues. So, you know, we, we, we think of all these sort of commercially available recovery products. At the end of the day, there's a free one called sleep. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and athletes could probably, or we, we know there's been a lot more investment in the idea of sleep. If you, if you think about that, that sort of gets us into the concept of athletes that then have to travel. So if you think of like basketball teams like you've mentioned in, in the States that have to move back and forth across the continent, that means changes in the the clock, doesn't it? In terms of you know, six a.m. in the morning becomes six p.m. at night, depending on how many hours you and you know, how many time zones you're going to move through. That that then could be sleep disruptive. So there's been a lot of look at to, in terms of athletes and how far they have to move between games and how do they actually then get the correct amount of sleep because now they might be playing at ten o'clock at night. Uh, because they yeah. switch time zones, so that 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 has to be taken into consideration as well. Yeah, of course. So for someone who's kind of staying in the pl- same place, what are kind of the optimal times of the day that they should be looking to get their sleep? Okay, yeah. So um, wh- what we do know is we need sleep regularly, i.e., every twenty-four hours. Um, you know, there's a lot of examples where you know athletes claim that they only sleep for twenty minutes or sleep for half an hour. Um, but we do know that sleep has to go through you know, a variety of cycles like REM sleep. Um, and we know that there's you know, um, surveys of athletes looking at how much sleep they do get. Um, six hours seems to be the average reported time that athletes will say that they'll sleep in a sort of a, a bulk period of time. Reality is it's probably something more like the seven to seven and a half has been shown to be fairly optimal. But in saying that, they can also grab sleep it, it's not to say that they can't grab half an hour of sleep after a training program if they know they have to back up later in the day. So, you know, surprisingly, a lot of hormones get released quite quickly. So even that 30 to 45 minutes could be useful. You can't rely on 30, 45 minutes and not have the long duration sleep overnight, but the added sleep of another 45 minutes, you know, you know after a training session could be quite useful for some athletes. And again, it doesn't have to be all year. It might only be in certain periods of the year where training intensity is really high yeah um also just touching on compression i personally haven't noticed much of a difference wearing skins versus not Mm -hmm. um 
is there much of um like research showing does it does it really work with and stuff because like yeah i've i've used skins myself i've used different brands of skins well obviously not skins if they're a different brand but mm. um sometimes i notice a slight difference but i haven't noticed a you know a great deal mm. of difference myself yeah it, 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 what what's the theory of the skins the you know it's an external compression it's around the lower limbs the lower limbs you know blood and lymph have to move against gravity to get back to the central parts of your body so the, the, the skins the idea is it's compressing up particularly the veins and helping blood to flow back interesting enough there's been a couple of studies that have shown that skins might actually be a negative in terms of having training effects uh and so not not being able to um uh, allow the cardiovascular system to operate under its normal vasodilation and constriction has actually then been questioned to say that you know athletes that actually train in skins potentially might be having a negative well not a negative effect but they reduce the ability for themselves to adapt um performance wise I'm not convinced that they improve performance unless you take examples where, you know, for example, you know, swimming, swimming with, you know, skins. Well, that's actually a friction issue, isn't it? So, you know, swimmers like Ian yeah, Thorpe yeah, yeah. wearing the full bodysuit moving through the water, that actually then changed the way that he was actually, you know, the friction of that um, water moving across his body was changed. And that was a, nearly a, you could call it a, a mechanical process rather than a physiological process. Um, skins in terms of moving through air well air is also a fluid but probably it's not so much of an issue we move through air as humans a bit easier than what we move through water so there's probably an added advantage to wearing a uh, a slick suit in water versus a slick suit yeah, in air yeah. also you touched on hydration earlier um around recovery so how important really is hydration and i think a lot of athletes probably aren't getting enough and it's like oh, i forgot my drink bottle after oh, i'll just have mm. a quick drink like a mouthful of water from the bubbler i'll be fine yeah um how important is hydration and how much hydration should athletes really be getting yeah so um again that's it's been hijacked a lot by the you know commercial market isn't it so you're told you know drink this much of this product or this much of this product but we know that the, you know, underwriting that is they want to sell their product so you have to go back to the basics and say well what are we trying to do we're trying to maintain body fluids or blood volume um why do we do that we do it to to improve cardiac performance we do it so we can cool down because every time we heat up we sweat don't we and then we lose fluid so we have to replace that how much do we need again it depends on things like how long is the exercise how intense is it is it in a hot environment is it in a human environment um, can the human cope being slightly dehydrated the answer is yes so if you think about the percentage they talk about percentage of dehydration anything around the one to two percent dehydration hasn't really demonstrated to impact on performance per se if we're moving beyond three percent down to five percent depending on the activity like an endurance activity um, you know we're starting to move into the realms of may or may not affect performance depending on what the performance is once we're beyond six to seven percent and interesting the world health organization only classifies you as fully dehydrated once you're 10 percent dehydrated um, then you're actually looking at you know quite significant impact so to give you an example we did a you know, several dehydration trials in our labs over time where we dehydrated ourselves beyond six to seven percent and i can tell you when you're at six and seven percent it really does start to impact your performance personally i can in those same instances i can't really tell whether i'm one two or three percent dehydrated it really doesn't affect performance so 
what an athlete needs to do is have a look at what strategies are you going to use to then keep yourself don't you don't have to be fully dehydrated in fact if you're fully dehydrated you've got to go to the toilet all the time so that could actually be a negative effect as well so keeping yourself in that sort of one or two percent dehydration according to your body mass that's really just things like being able to play around with how much fluid or mils of fluid you have to take in per hour um, to maintain body body mass and that and when i say body mass it's only a raw indicator of your hydration status because obviously fluids move around your body as well into different compartments um, but athletes you know can can take very basic strategies by looking and saying well i've trained for six hours i can put myself on some scales and i notice that i've dropped a couple of kilos i need to obviously replace that yeah, both yeah. with fluid and 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 energy through you know carbohydrates and diet too so I think that a guideline that I found when I was looking at stuff was kind of um, a liter per hour of exercise. Was would that be kind of for most it's, people? It, it's rough, but again, it depends on whether you're exercising in a hot, humid environment, or a hot, dry environment, or a cool environment. So yes, the liter per hour roughly is 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 the golden rule. But reality is, every athlete actually has to work through personally to see how much sweat because we know people yeah, sweat yeah. more and sweat less and in fact sometimes we're sweating we don't even know about so if you think about exercising in a hot environment you can be sweating but it evaporates off your skin very quickly and you mentally think you're not sweating uh, you actually are it's just that it's evaporating yeah, as yeah. a gas really quickly it's only when you're in a hot human environment that you notice that sweat building up and dripping off your body so so we we know that individuals have different sweat rates and therefore they'll need a, a fairly personalized hydration plan and that can take a bit of time to work out with for example a sports nutritionist or a, a sports scientist uh, and again it's looking at the situation it can't be one rule it's when i'm training or playing in this environment i need a different rule compared to if i'm training and playing in a, in a, a cold environment for example yeah yeah um i think i've seen like nfl teams for example after training they'll weigh that they'll weigh themselves before and after training and yep. then based off how many kilos they've lost yeah. they'll you know, give themselves give a roughly a litre per kilo that per they've kilo, lost. Per kilo, yeah, that, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, so the last thing I want to ask you about before I let you go is um, hydrolytes in, in like hydration stuff. Um, how important is it to get the salts back that way? Um, can you get them later and do, do they really work and it help to improve? Yeah, so electrolytes are important, so sodium and potassium, because they help our body to maintain simple processes like, you know, your heart beating, for example. So, you know the body wants to we call it regulate and and part of it is you know regulating of your ions like sodium potassium have to be within a certain range when we sweat we know we lose for instance you know sodium and so that has to be replaced um, again depending on the sweat rate and whether you're heavy sweater or not then you know sodium levels you know should be replaced probably the basic rule is if you're looking at sort of a um, you know under an hour's performance um you, you know you're only going to lose maybe one or two percent of your body mass you could probably survive off water no problems it's when we're over an hour and we're extending into the two hour mark and we know that we have to um you know uh, put sodium back in but it's a balance between do i do i get it through the fluid or am i taking for instance a gel or some sort of solid food at the same time because the sodium can also come through yeah, through yeah. food too um one of the biggest challenges I think an athlete will face with simply taking in all of their energy and all of their 
electrolytes through fluid is they can end up with gastrointestinal discomfort because they're basically just filling their GI tract with with lots of fluid and a lot of athletes complain of being you know dis you know having a lot of discomfort in their stomach and their intestines during during events so it's it's a balance and recognizing you can't survive off fluid alone you can't survive off gels alone and you can't survive off food so it's a mixture between those three things again it's a matter of yes there are some guidelines but each athlete will have to work through to work out what's best for them in terms of their needs and how their body works as well yeah yeah um for your just your regular you know healthy person gym goer what would you say are just like the few key things that they really need to focus on just to make sure that they're right um and they're doing things right to make sure that their body is good for you know going to the gym a couple times a week and maybe going for a run and especially obviously if they haven't done something like that in a while making sure that they're right to do that yeah so so the general principle of keeping healthy well we know if we go down to the basic guidelines that we all need yeah physical activity every day and and reality is i sort of use a principle that we should all be active for around about 60 minutes minimum that gets us over the physical activity guidelines of 150 minutes per week in terms of diet again it's that variety of food if you're just getting back into exercise i think the number one rule is to not not expect that it's all going to be solved within four weeks exercise is something that the body has to be able to adapt to it can do that but it can take a period of time so the expectations are really important that if you're aiming to be able to run 10k or a marathon you don't go out and run 10k of the marathon as soon as you start retraining the body will adapt but it'll take a period of time when we train we adapt and we become a little bit stronger so i think the number one rule for me is um, exercise consistently exercise within um, uh, an intensity that doesn't cause like what we've been talking about excessive um, injuries excessive fatigue uh, and build up slowly and you'll be surprised at how much that everybody can actually sustain either you know an improvement um, but it's just a matter of being patient yeah yeah um, yeah um, so that's all I've got for you today um, thank you very that's much right. um, good chat, Dr. Greg Peoples excellent we'll, um, I'm sure we'll catch up on a few more topics in the future yeah yeah um, I'm, sure, I'm sure I'll get you back on to uh, answer some questions some people have excellent uh, thanks um, catch thanks up for coming soon. on yeah alright guys how was that I hope you learn as much as I did I learn a lot um, yeah great podcast I think and thank you very much to Dr. Greg Peoples for coming on so that we could do that with him. And we could all learn a lot about health and nutrition and just lots of different stuff. Uh, new podcast coming out on Thursday and then we should stick to that consistent schedule. Tell a friend about the podcast, get them involved too. Should be really cool. Yeah. Uh, have a great day. Peace. <laughs>